The noted Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser once quipped, in order to really understand the New Testament, one has to have an understanding of the Old Testament. And in order to understand the Old Testament, one has to have a grasp of Genesis. And in order to understand Genesis, one has to have a thorough understanding of Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Some might think that since we live in the church age, what Paul called the dispensation of the grace of God, we have no need to study Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. That's an unfortunate idea. In order to be a mature believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, one who both knows the Word and applies the Word, we must have a knowledge of the entirety, the whole of divine revelation. We can't be lazy in our approach, picking and choosing to study what suits us and think ourselves either informed or mature. It doesn't work that way. It has become a trend in a lot of churches, a lot of Bible churches today, to completely ignore the Old Testament, to only stay in the New Testament. Some churches are going so far as to only stay in the Pauline epistles. And that's a huge mistake. All Scripture is God-breathed. Paul was speaking of the Hebrew Bible when he made that statement. In order to understand the Pauline epistles, we've got to understand Hebrew Bible. So that's why we study these things. This study has, in my opinion, the study of Genesis, has been crucial to our spiritual lives. Genesis doesn't begin by arguing for the existence of God. It assumes the existence of an infinite personal God and states that everything that came into existence came into existence by the word of his mouth. The original audience of Genesis was the newly formed nation Israel that was in the wilderness awaiting their time when they would go into the land. The land was filled with giant people who worshipped things that God created. They worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars and, and the things of the earth. And what Moses is doing, among other things, in Genesis is he's making sure that the Jews know that everything that these Canaanites worshipped, the people that they feared so much, everything that the people they feared so much worshipped was created by the God of Israel. That's one of the purposes of Genesis. Also, they needed to be assured that the same God who rescued them from bondage in Egypt would also deliver them as they went into the land. So the questions that Moses had to answer in this book of Genesis, which we summarize today, were really twofold. Was the God of the Jews able to fulfill that which he had promised? And also, was he willing to fulfill that which he had promised? Or was he faithful to fulfill that which he had promised? And the answer is yes on both accounts. God is able to do that which he's promised because he's omnipotent. We saw that in chapters 1 and 2. If you can create everything by the word of your mouth, I think that you can also rescue the Jews as they, goes into, as they go into the land. That's one of the aspects that we studied in Genesis. Time after time, we see the God of the Bible keep his promises. That means that we can also count on him. That's one of the things that the New Testament Christian can learn from Genesis. We can count on God. In the beginning, God called his own creation good. And then when he got to humanity, he called it very good. Tov me'od. 
It was the highlight of his, of his creation. He blessed the man and the woman. The Hebrew term barak, a very important term that we've studied over the course of studying Genesis. And told them to be fruitful and to multiply. But before they were fruitful and multiplied, something terrible happened. Genesis chapter 3 records that the man and the woman were tempted by Satan and thinking that rebelling against God would be to their benefit, that it would make them like God, knowing the difference between good and evil, thinking that they took of the fruit and they ate it and they fell. They died that day. They died spiritually immediately, and then the clock began ticking on their physical death. They got exactly the opposite of what they had hoped to get by rebelling against God, and that's what has happened ever since. Happiness does not come from rebelling against God. It didn't come in the beginning, and it will not come now. We learn that from Genesis chapter 3. Happiness is never found in rebellion against God. As tempting as we might think it is, happiness is never found in rebellion against God. God does seek to bless mankind. That's one of the other great themes of Genesis God seeks to bless mankind, but he's going to do it on his terms. We can't thumb our nose at God and then expect him to turn around and bless us. It doesn't work that way. God is never going to bless disobedience. Sometimes he patiently waits for us to repent from that disobedience, and we might get the wrong-headed idea that he's okay with it. He's not okay with it. Never. There will always be consequences to our actions. That's something that we learned in Genesis chapter 3. The man and the woman couldn't have God on their terms. God is God and we're not. He's the creator and we're not. We need to come to God on his terms and not on ours. So in Genesis chapter 3, we see the introduction of rebellion into the human race. They sought contentment, but they got pain. In fact, their actions, the actions of Adam and Eve, brought pain into the human experience. We want to know where pain and suffering came from. It came from us. God did not invent evil. God invented good. Evil is a perversion of good. That's what we got by disobedience. In fact, Romans chapter 5 informs us that it is because of Adam's original sin that we're all born dead spiritually. We're born physically alive, but we're born spiritually dead. Now, there are a lot of different theories on how that happens. There's a seminal theory and a federal theory, and those we can talk about at another time. But the reality is that it does happen. Romans chapter 5 says, in some way we're all associated with Adam's original sin. It was passed down to us. And before we get on our high horse and say, well, that's not fair, I think most of us would admit, I hope we would, if there's any sanity left in us at all, that we'd have sinned since we're saved. So we can't get on our high horse and say, well, if it wasn't for Adam's sin, I'd be going to heaven. No, you wouldn't. It's just that God in His grace caused us to be condemned at birth. And I think part of that is because if someone happens to die in infancy or perhaps as a mentally handicapped person, they've already been condemned and God is free to apply the grace of God to that person's account and save them based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. We studied that in Genesis chapter 3. No one's going to get to heaven apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, from the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's one way God can do that. So we saw sin and rebellion introduced in Genesis chapter 3. Creation in 1 and 2, sin and rebellion in Genesis chapter 3. But we also saw something else introduced in Genesis chapter 3. 
And that's hope. Because even though there was sin and rebellion that was introduced right in the beginning of divine special revelation, hope is also introduced. And one of the sweetest words in all of the Bible, and that's grace. Because we didn't, neither Adam or Eve nor us, earned or deserved any kind of grace on God's part. That's what makes it grace. If we earned or deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. And from the very beginning, God introduced a way out, and that's grace. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, speaking to the serpent in the oracle against the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. I know that doesn't sound like John 3.16, but that's the John 3.16 of Genesis. That's the first mention of the gospel. That's where grace is introduced. As soon as sin and rebellion are introduced and the fall right after that, Immediately after that same chapter, in the same chapter, grace is introduced. That's the kind of God that the Jews worshipped. That's the kind of God that we worshipped. I know that John 3.16 may be a little more clear to our ears. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. That's the... That's an expanded version of the gospel, a a progressive revelation kind of version of the gospel. But the very first time it was given was something like this. I'm going to send the seed of the woman. There will be someone born of Eve or of her offspring. And that someone is going to be ultimately good. And that seed of the woman is going to be ultimately good and ultimately conquer evil. Now, how Adam and Eve did it, I'm not exactly sure. The text doesn't tell us, but I know that they were saved by grace through faith because everyone is saved by grace through faith. No exception. Everyone who has the mental capability to do it. So Adam and Eve were saved by grace through faith as well. They accepted God's grace and they were regenerated. Even though they accept the grace of God and they are saved individuals, Things don't immediately take a positive upward turn. Unfortunately, in the very next chapter, we see the first murder in the Bible, Genesis chapter 4. It's interesting to me that in the the way that Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 is written, it's very possible that Eve thinks that Cain, her firstborn, is the seed of the woman. The Hebrew could certainly be understood that way, and we studied that as well. It would be natural for her to think that. If she's been promised that her seed, her offspring, would be one who ultimately would conquer evil, it turns out we find out very quickly, though, that it's not Cain, because Cain murders his brother. He's hardly ultimately good. As the progress of Revelation goes from Genesis chapter 4 all the way through Genesis chapter 6, things get worse and worse. They don't get better and better. It makes me chuckle sometimes to think that there are still theologians out there that think the world is getting better and better and better, and one day it'll be perfect and we can usher in the millennium. I thought that went out with World War II. It started to go out in World War I. There were very few post-millennialists after World War I. There were almost none after World War II because everybody could see nothing. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. Well, it did that in Genesis chapter four, chapters 4 through 6. It got worse and worse. Then in Genesis chapter 6, we see that God is so upset with his creation that he repented that he even made mankind. Now, that was a, an anthropomorphism. It's a figure of speech ascribing to God, a human characteristic that he 
doesn't actually possess so that we can understand what's going on. But you'll recall he judged mankind. Every, all of mankind, all of his creation except for one family. And then two of each kind of his creation. He judged them. And we would think after this great flood that things would then get better and better and better because he started with a righteous group again. But it doesn't work that way. Some might even thought as time was going on that maybe Noah was the seed of the woman because he was the most righteous man of his day. But we learn as that narrative unfolds that Noah wasn't perfect either. He had his own problems. And then in Genesis chapter 12, a seismic event occurred. We're introduced to a man named Abram, who later will be called Abraham. If we were to make a list of the most significant events in the Bible, I think the things that happen in Genesis chapter 12, particularly verses 1 through 3, would have to make the list. The initial giving of the Abrahamic covenant. Read along with me. Perhaps your Bibles are even still open there because this was our scripture reading this morning. Now the Lord God, or the Lord, said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. So you shall be a blessing. Then in verse 3, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now we've got an incredible narrowing of who the seed of the woman could be. We're going to find out later it's not Abraham. But the seed of the woman is going to come through Abraham. This is a seismic event. In fact, some scholars outside of the cross, the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, would put this as number three. And in the most important things that have ever occurred, that, that were related in the Bible, that had ever occurred, would be the giving of the Abrahamic covenant. In the early chapters of Genesis God is dealing with mankind in general. With the sinfulness of the human race established, God in His grace now moves to bless and redeem a fallen humanity by working through a special people. One family, in effect. Abraham becomes the central figure through whom God will do His work. Salvation and blessing will come to the human race through the family of this man, Abram, that's introduced in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Or at least the covenant is introduced here. Another way of putting it is the seed of the woman is going to come through Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. I want to say that again because it's one of the most important things that we studied in Genesis. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant, meaning that it does not depend upon the obedience of Abraham and his family for its continued effect. There are no if clauses suggesting that its fulfillment is dependent upon man. Having said that, I do need to remind you of one thing that we studied in Genesis chapter 12, and that is if one is to enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, then that's a different thing. If you're to enjoy the blessings, if a Jew was to enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, they had to be associated with Father Abraham in faith. There had to be obedience. Therefore, there were and are 
some of Abraham's offspring that do not enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant still covers all of racial Israel, but not in terms of blessing. If one is to enjoy the blessing of the covenant, they must be rightly related to Yahweh by grace through faith, just like Abraham was. This has significance, too, in our day. I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to speak to Jewish friends about Jesus Christ. I have, and I'm sure many of you have. But one of the things I'm sure you've come up against, if you have, spent the time to try to give the gospel to a person that's of Jewish heritage. That is, there is this thought in the back of many of their minds that they're going to heaven because they're racially associated with Father Abraham. In other words, I'm a Jew, I'm going you're a Gentile, you're not. That baffles me because a group of people that have been the recipients of probably the worst racism of any group that's ever lived, in fact, have a very racist soteriology sometimes. What could be more racist than to say, I'm going to heaven because I'm of this race and you're not going to heaven because you're not? In fact, that's not even a biblical concept. And if you take them back and say, well, that's interesting. Tell me, how was Father Abraham rightly related to God? Most of them couldn't tell you. Then you can take them back to a passage like Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which says Abraham is rightly related to God by grace through faith. And that's the way they have to be rightly related to God as well. Now, there's an advantage to being a Jew. Paul says much in every way in, in, in the book of Romans. But there is no advantage in being a Jew unless you have trusted Yahweh to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life. Sometimes people wonder, what's the difference in evangelism between Christianity and, and Judaism? The big difference is that some, or at least all in Judaism, pure Judaism, believe they're going to heaven because of their racial association with Abraham and their good works. The Christian says we're going to heaven because of what Jesus Christ did. That's the difference. And I don't say this to be in, in any way derogatory toward my Jewish friends. My brother's done research. He thinks that we're partially Jewish. Hey, hallelujah. I'm glad of that. Wonderful. I would be delighted to find out that I have some Jewish blood in me. I don't know if it's true, but it's not going to get me any closer to heaven. It doesn't get anyone any closer to heaven. Jews, just like Gentiles, need to follow the pattern of Father Abraham in faith if they are to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. So the covenant's unconditional, and the covenant is the central theological issue in the book of Genesis. The covenant is unconditional. Now, there was one, I have to say, some people might point out, well, there was one condition for Abraham, and that's that he should go. Once he initially went, then the covenant was enacted, and then it's unconditional. That means that there's nothing that Abraham can do to undo it. There's no act of disobedience. There's no act of rejection that Abraham could do to undo the promise that God gave to him. In a sense, you know, we have an unconditional covenant as well. And that's our salvation. God says, if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, then I will do this. And even though it gets under people's skin. No amount of disobedience can undo that promise of God. So if you can understand our salvation and eternal security, you can also understand the unconditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant. It's crucial. 
So it's unconditional. But there's also something else that we've spent a great deal of time studying, and this is so important as well. It's a literal covenant. It's not figurative. It's literal. The promises that are given to Abraham should then be understood as being fulfilled literally, not figuratively. Particularly the land. This is where there's a flashpoint today. Should the Jews even occupy the land? Are they stealing the land? Should they even be there? Do they have any right to it? That land belongs to Abraham and his descendants forever. Now, whether they are going to get it right now or it's a time in the future, there will be one day when the descendants of Abraham occupy all of that land, and even more we'll see in another passage. It should be understood literally. The land that is given to them and the boundaries thereof should be understood as it is written here in the way we would understand anything else. Normally, literally, the land that is given there is not a figure of heaven. Some people try to twist things around. It's not a figure of heaven. It's to be literally understood. So it's a, a covenant that's unconditional. It's a literal covenant, but it's also an everlasting covenant. No time limit to it. The promises that God made to Israel are eternal. They have not and will not ever be transferred to another group. And those of you that are pretty savvy with regard to, to issues within the Christian faith know that there are a great many Christians who believe that the promises that were given to Abraham have now been shifted over to the church. Because of Abraham's family's disobedience, they've been shifted over to the church. There are several problems with that. The first thing, it's an unconditional covenant. Their disobedience can't cancel that covenant. Just like, even though people don't like it, after we're truly saved, our disobedience can't cancel the promise God gave us. Once we're saved, we're saved. It's an eternal covenant. There are no time limits on it. But it's also meant to be fulfilled literally in Abraham's seed. And God is faithful. He, he doesn't take something and then give it back after he's promised it. When we studied this, we gave this illustration. If we were to give this side of the room, if I was to promise this side of the room unconditionally, I'm going to give you $100 a piece. $150. I'm going to add more to it. $150 a piece because you can't hardly buy anything for $100 anymore. I'm going to give this side $150 a piece when this service is over. Now that you've showed up here, I'm going to give you $150 a piece. If you didn't show up, you don't get it. Now this group's just out of luck because you sat on the wrong side this morning. But this group over here, I'm going to give $150 to at the end of this service. You showed up. You fulfilled that requirement. Now there's nothing you can do to cancel that. But let's say a couple of you wild ones over here started talking during the service and texting and letting your, you know, bringing your cell phone out and, and then coming and going and doing all kinds of things. And I said, you know what? This group was fairly disobedient today because that's what people sit on this side typically are a lot of times. <laughs> that's not true. That's not true. So you know what? I changed my mind. This group's just been, disobedient, been disobedient, so I think I'm going to transfer all that money over to this group right here. And everybody on this side gets 150 bucks. Amen. I know you'd like it. <laughs> the church would like that to be the case. But you know what? This group over here has blessings all their own. That this group doesn't necessarily enjoy. Now, if you were on this side, 
you might say, and you might say rightly, no, wait a minute, you didn't put any conditions on that. You didn't say anything about that we had to be obedient in order to get the $150. You said we were going to get it. Now that we showed up, we're going to get it. That's not being honest, you might say. And you know what I would say? You're right. That's not being honest. That is not being faithful. What I wouldn't say is this. Well, that's just your view of honesty. I don't know where you got that view of honesty. That's a man-made view of honesty. Where did you get that view of honesty? Part of the moral law. You were born with that. You know what's true and what's not true, what's honest and what's dishonest. You see, that's what some theologians like to do with the Abrahamic covenant. They say, well, these guys over here weren't faithful, so we're going to give it to these guys over here now. And these guys over here, they're just out of luck. Well, I'm going to bless these people now. You know what? God's got enough blessing to go around. He blesses both groups. Now, in this case, the Jews were rebellious. So for centuries, they did not enjoy the benefits of the Abrahamic covenant. It'd be like giving you $150, but there's no place to spend it. See, that's where they were. They were, they were recipients of the umbrella of the covenant, but they couldn't enjoy it. So the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional, it's literal, and it's everlasting. Those who would take the notion that the Abrahamic covenant has been shifted over to the church because of Israel's disobedience do so because of the way that they interpret Scripture. They would never go so far as to say God's unfair. Now, some of them do say, well, that's just your idea of fairness. But those who are more astute would say, well, no, that's not the way I take that passage. Have you ever wondered, I know I have, have you ever wondered why two really great minds, believing minds, Christian minds, could look at the same passage and come up with radically different ideas? You know how that's done? Some of you have asked me that question. How could that be? How could this fellow say that and this fellow who I also respect say this? I want to give you the answer to that. Same way it is in law sometimes. It's the way that we interpret Scripture. It's the boundaries that you place on, upon yourself or the lack thereof when you interpret Scripture. I believe that the Bible should be interpreted in a literal, normal way, meaning that what the words say they mean, allowing for hyperbole, figures of speech like hyperbole and simile, metaphor, when Jesus says, I am the door, I understand that he's talking that, about he's a passageway. That's a figure of speech we all understand. So when we say we take the Bible literally, it doesn't mean we don't allow for figures of speech. But we let the author determine the meaning of his words. I don't get to determine them. The goal of interpretation should be to determine the author's intended meaning as it's expressed in the text. What God says here is what he meant me to understand. We can't do something like God says it's day, and we say, well, I, I know that's what it says, but to me, that means nighttime. i never forget when this whole postmodern interpretive thing started coming out. I was in college in the early 70s at Southwest Louisiana University. They don't even call it that anymore. It's, I think it's University of Louisiana Lafayette maybe now, but I was in an English class with a teacher who had just gotten her Ph.D., and she was young and attractive and had totally lost control of the class from the very first day. It was really amazing how it worked out. We would sit in a circle and we would discuss Shakespeare. Now she started off with the notion that it's not what Shakespeare said, it's what Shakespeare means to you. So I would do my assignment, I would look at it for maybe three or four minutes, I would go into class and when it came to my turn I'd say, well this is what it means to me. 
And I would come up with some of the weirdest ideas. You know what she had to say? Okay, well, Bruce, that's cool. (laughs) Because she couldn't say it was wrong because it was what it meant to me. Ultimately, we do want to understand what the Bible means to us. But we have to understand what God meant by it first. And the only way we're going to get that is to let the words mean what they say. If the words say that Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years... It means he's going to reign for a thousand years unless you can come up with really good evidence that says that that's not what it really means, that it's some sort of figure of speech. And by the way, you can't do that. That's why theologians come up with different things. That's why some people say, I know it says that, you know, there are no, no, there are no conditions given, but there must have been, so that's why he transferred it over. No, it's literal, it's unconditional, and it is eternal. If you take the Bible at face value, And this is not a radical idea. If your wife writes you a note and leaves it on the counter later on this evening that says, hey, listen, I've gone to work out at 24-hour fitness. I'll be back in an hour. Wouldn't you think that it would only be right for her to be able to ascribe meaning to what she said? Most of us would think, unless there are some extenuating circumstances that we're not aware of, but most of us would think if we got that and if we saw it on the counter that what my wife really meant was that she was going to 24-hour fitness and she'll be back in an hour. It wasn't some sort of code for, listen, I'm having an illicit affair and I'm I'm really not going to work out, but, you know, if we went to counseling and they said that, they'd say, wait a minute, what's the matter with you? Why is there no more trust? Why don't you trust her words to mean what they say? Some people do that with God. Well, I know that's what he said, but that's not what I think it means. If that's what he said, that's what he said. That's a crucial element that we studied in the book of Genesis. We see it from the get-go. We need to interpret this in the way that it's meant to be interpreted. And if we do that, then we will come up with an eschatology, which is a study of future things, that is both pre-tribulational and pre-millennial. Pre-tribulational, meaning that Jesus Christ is going to come for his church before the tribulation. And that Jesus Christ is going to come and rescue Israel before the millennium. The millennium is not going to come first and then he rescues Israel. It's really not that hard. It all has to do with method of interpretation. I hope that makes it easier for you. So when you read things that are different, just understand they're looking at the text differently. The early church wasn't that way, by the way. The very earliest church did hold to a literal interpretation of Scripture. And then it all got twisted around. In fact, I think if you research long enough, you can, you can see that Augustine himself held to a literal interpretation of Scripture, and then the later Augustine held to a more allegorical method. That's why some of his theology changed. Now, there are three major aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. There's a land, seed, and a blessing aspect. The promise of the land comes in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And even though this is a summary, you're going to see that we're going to spend most of our time in these three verses, because these are the central verses In all the book of Genesis. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. That's the only act of obedience that was required of him. Going forth. Once he did it, then the covenant is set. God called Abraham from Ur the Chaldees to a land that he would give him. The promise is reiterated in Genesis chapter 13 verses 14 through 18. It's confirmed in that passage. Its dimensions, the dimensions of the land are given in Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. If you happen to have your Bibles handy, turn over a couple chapters to Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. 
where the dimensions of the land are brought into more specificity. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, and the Kadamite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Raphaim, then the Amorite, and the Canaanite, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. These were all peoples that occupied certain aspects of land that essentially ran from the Euphrates to at least close to the Nile. The Jews, in their history, have never occupied the entirety of the land. They probably came closest in the reigns of David and then Solomon, who expanded the kingdom a bit. But they've never occupied all of this. This is a promise that has of yet has not been completely fulfilled. That's the land aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. But there's also a promise of descendants, and that's Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Actually, when we studied Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we saw that what God is telling Abraham is you are to be a blessing. Not only am I going to bless you, but then in turn, you're to be a blessing. Part of that blessing is the fact that the Savior, the the seed of the woman, is going to come through this man, Abraham. But Abraham had a responsibility as well. There's an old Roman proverb, to whom much is given, much is expected. Abraham, if he is going to be the recipient of this great covenant, if this seismic event occurred in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, like it looks like it did, then there are also responsibilities for you, Abraham. If I'm going to give you all this, you need to act like it. In the same way today, we have responsibilities. As a Christian, we have great privileges. We have great honor. We have great blessing. God has given the Holy Spirit to every single one of us. But he also expects us to be ambassadors for him. He expected Abraham to be an ambassador. Sometimes he was a good one and Sometimes it wasn't so good. We've seen that. Abraham wasn't perfect. And I'm so appreciative that God put those passages in that showed Abraham's sin. Because now today, no one can argue that Abraham's in heaven because of his perfection. No, he, he tried to pass off his wife as his sister twice. I know it was his half-sister. But this wasn't a benevolent gesture on his part at all. It was to save his own skin. So, so I know one or two have, but it's a futile argument to try to make it that he wasn't really sinning there. Abraham saved by grace through faith, not because of any kind of perfection. So he's promised seed descendants, and he's promised blessing. But back to, but back to verse 2, you shall be a blessing. God promised Abraham that he would make a great nation of him. He's 75 years old at the time. He he's, has no children. But he's promised many descendants. This promise is amplified like the rest of the Abrahamic covenant. It's amplified in Genesis 17, 6, where God promised that kings and nations would come from Abraham. The promise is expanded in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, that we call the Davidic covenant, which states that even more specifically, the Messiah is going to come through the line of David. Still from Abraham, but through the line of David. So throughout Genesis, we saw the Messiah is going to come from Abraham. Well, first, the seed of the woman. Then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and then finally one family from Judah, and that's David. That's the the seed aspect of the covenant. And then blessing in Genesis chapter 12, 3, and I will bless those who bless you. You need to be careful with the whole anti-Semitic idea. 
That's one thing that I've asked an individual or two not to attend our church over was anti-Semitism. I'll not have it. We can't have it. We can't afford it. We ought not to be anti-any race, by the way. Any race. Racism is a terrible thing in Christianity. There's no excuse for it at all. All men and all women were created in God's image. That means all men and women have value. Skin color shouldn't mean anything. But especially anti-Semitism. There's a special curse for that. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there is a promise of blessing. He was to be blessed and he was also to bless others. Now this promise is expanded in Jeremiah 31. This is called the New Covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It has to do with Israel's spiritual blessing and their redemption. I know it can be tough to keep all of this straight. But if we're to be biblically literate, we need to be able to do that. Let me put it this way. There are three aspects to the Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, and blessing. The land aspect of the covenant is expanded into what is known as the Palestinian covenant. Those are the specific dimensions of the land. The seed aspect is expanded into what we know as the Davidic covenant. And then the blessing aspect is expanded into what we know as the new covenant. Land, seed, and blessing. Land, Palestinian. Seed, Davidic. Blessing, new covenant. I hope that helps us to keep those straight. The unconditional nature of the covenant is seen in that it's reaffirmed to Isaac. It's not just for Abraham. It's for Abraham and his seed. So not only is it confirmed to Isaac, it's also confirmed to Jacob. As we've seen in Genesis chapters 12 all the way through chapter 50, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were anything but perfect. They were anything but obedient. Abraham, I have to give you this. I think everybody would give you this. Abraham was a man of great faith. He had great failures, but he had great faith. Objectively, we'd have to look at people like Isaac and Jacob and even Judah as men of, at best, moderate faith. It's noteworthy to me, and I hope it was to you as we studied Genesis, that it's typically either right before or right after times that great sins are revealed in the patriarchs that these covenants are reaffirmed, showing us that they're unconditional. In case you missed it last week, the final chapter of Genesis records the aftermath of the death of Jacob, and then it records the death of Joseph. At the times of their deaths, they were living in Egypt. But their citizenship, in a sense, wasn't really in Egypt. It was still in the land, just like with us. Paul says, our citizenship is not here. We reside in Houston, Texas, most of us, or the surrounding areas. But our citizenship really is in heaven, a place we've never been to yet. As Genesis ends, we see two great patriarchs, Jacob and Joseph, both die. And when they died, the promise had not yet been fulfilled. But they knew it would be. They had confidence, every confidence. As a matter of fact, when we studied the way they planned their burials, they, they planned their burials to demonstrate that they had confidence in the future, that one day they would be in the land, when they would occupy exactly 
what had been promised to them. That it wasn't going to be transferred to some other group. That, that it should be interpreted literally. It's clear to me that they didn't know how that was going to happen. But they knew that it would. In the same way that we get ourselves in messes all the time. And we pray to God, help me out of this mess. And we have no clue. At least I've been this way. We have no clue as to how God's going to do that. In fact, if I had to chart it out, I don't even have a, I don't even have a suggestion for you, Lord. And then he answers that prayer in a way we never thought it would be answered. It's the same way with Jacob and the same way with Joseph. They had no clue as to how it was going to happen. But they knew it would. And so as the book of Genesis closes, we see these promises have not yet been fully fulfilled. In fact, to this day, the promises haven't been fully fulfilled. But I am confident that they will be. Because God said it. You know that old bumper sticker? It was kind of a, it was almost camp, but it was, it was cute. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Well, that's kind of how Jacob and Joseph were. God said it. Of course, you didn't have to put the middle part in. God said it. That settles it. Whether I have confidence in it or not, God said it. That settles it. So in conclusion, what is the Christian to take from the book of Genesis? First, as we said, as we started today, an understanding of Genesis is foundational to understanding the rest of the Old Testament. It's foundational to the understanding of the New Testament, where we all want to spend our time. It's foundational. I think it is a colossal mistake for New Testament Christians to willfully ignore the Old Testament. Because you can't understand Paul's epistles without it. He assumes a certain level of understanding of the Old Testament in some of his epistles. Second, in Genesis we see over and over again on almost every page something of the character of God. We see it in his creative acts in the first two chapters. He speaks and everything that is in existence comes into existence. That it is now was a result of that speaking. You've got to be pretty powerful to do that. You also have to be pretty intelligent to do that. Wouldn't you agree? We see something of God in his creation. We also see something of God in Genesis chapter 3. We can't just come to him on our terms. We have to come to him on his terms. Both rebellion and grace are introduced in Genesis. Now, grace is not actually an attribute of God. It's an outworking of the attributes of God. But we see something of love, don't we? We see something of righteousness. In Genesis, certainly something of justice. We also see that he's sovereign. God's the boss. If he created everything, then he has a right to do whatever he wants to do with his creation. Whatever he wants to do. The only thing that binds him is the sum total of his infinite perfections. Because in his sovereignty, he's never going to violate his love. And in his love, he's never going to violate his justice, and so on. So we see a lot of the character of God in Genesis. And then finally, we also see something of the faithfulness of God in Genesis. The God that is revealed in Genesis is a God who keeps his promises. And if we can count on God to keep his promises to Abraham, we can count on him keeping his promises to us. We don't have to fret that, yes, he said, if you'll trust me, I'm going to give you eternal life. And then at some time in the future, maybe even at the judgment seat, or, heaven forbid, at the great white throne. We get there and he says, you know what? I know that's what I said, but man, you, the type of life you live, there's no way you're coming up here. Out with you. You don't have to worry about that. 
God's not that way. Now, this is not an excuse to sin. We've said that on nauseam. I hope you got that. But we can count on him to keep his promises. In the same way that the Jews couldn't enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant unless they were obedient, that's the same way with us. We're not going to enjoy our Christian experience unless we're obedient. Because rebellion never brings happiness. But once you're saved, you're saved. So we see something of the faithfulness of God. If God is going to keep his promises to Abraham, he's going to keep his promises to you and to me. That's the book of Genesis. Genesis. 